When I first started Bike Rumor, the quickest way to fill the pages with new product news was to hit the two major trade shows, Interbike and Eurobike. Over the years though, more and more of the major brands pulled out and hosted their own events to better connect with their dealers in the media. This left the small and medium brands with two options, either host their own event, which is very expensive and adds to the journalists' already busy schedules, or try to break through the hustle, bustle, and noise of the trade show floor. Enter Press Camp, the brainchild of Lance Kamasaska, a smaller, more intimate event that connects brands of all sizes with journalists from various titles in a relaxed, one-on-one -on -one environment that's actually fun. It's a simple concept, but it adds value for all parties involved, and it's allowed them to create a successful event business and love what they're doing. Seriously, these guys are always stoked when I see them. Here's Lance's story on how he started and continues to grow Press Camp. Welcome to the Build Cycle, the podcast by Tyler Benedict that explores the startup stories and growth tactics of hundreds of entrepreneurs, plus his own tips and tricks learned over two decades of launching, running, and growing businesses, including BikeRumor.com, the world's largest and most popular cycling tech blog. If you're thinking of starting your own business, the Build Cycle will give you the tools and inspiration to do it right. Now, let's dive into this episode of The Build Cycle. So Lance, where did the idea for Press Camp come from? It goes back to the era of time I was working with Interbike. And in fact, just a little caveat about my time with Interbike, I was there 10 years as show director. I always had these visions of doing these more intimate events that allowed people to spend more quality time than you would typically do at a trade show. Uh, wasn't always thinking about media per se, but just events that would get people together with quality time. And even during my tenure with Interbike, I hosted three events that kind of fit almost a blueprint of what we're doing now. Um, but it goes all the way back to the Pedro Fest. Uh, while I was with Interbike, Pedro Fest invited us to come in and spearhead bringing the media together uh, to, again, have more intimate, more quality time together and do some demo riding. And we did it actually one year at Pedro Fest. It was really small, it was really modest. Um, and it, I, oddly, it really wasn't that successful in terms of a monetary way of looking at it. But I love the idea. I love the concept. And it's you know, stuck with me until I finally left Interbike. And I, and I principally left Interbike because I was seeing that the larger trade shows, um, which bring together thousands and thousands of people at a very frenetic pace, really was everything I, I hated about big trade shows. <laughs> so when I left Interbike, um, I thought this concept of bringing the media together to meet with eager brands that have great stories to tell but just don't have quite the resources that the big brands have was a cool idea uh, and that's what launched the very first press camp in 2009 you know we set out to to bring in 20 brands or 20 manufacturers to meet with 20 members of the media and for me the whole thing started with making sure the media was on board uh, so at that time I pulled out my Rolodex I think that month of December 2008 I made about 30 calls and every call, all 30 that I finally got through, said, you bring together 20 brands of that caliber that you're describing, which is, you know, those 
up-and-coming brands that have great stories and great products, I'm there. And in fact, a lot of the journalists I spoke to went on to tell me what their calendars looked like for 2009 that given year, and you're doing me a big favor because there's no way I can see this many people. So I knew the idea was, was solid, and it was just a matter now of sharing that experience of talking to 30 journalists with the brands that I thought could benefit from the concept. And um, it, was, it was kind of spearheaded by Scott Sports bringing their line of bikes. Uh, we were in Sun Valley, that was their backyard, so that was a natural. Uh, Smith Optics and a few others immediately said yes. And once they had the momentum of some strong brand names and I already had the media guys kind of pledging to come, it came together very quickly and we launched that first event and it was successful. Yeah, it's a smart move to, I guess, get the media on board first because then the brands immediately have interest instead of saying, well, I'm going to get some brands together right. and we'll see if we can get the media to show up. You know, I, I learned that lesson, I think, from my years with Interbike because, you know, with the Interbike show, there's always a debate. You know, it's a show for the manufacturers or the show for the retailers. Well, really, it's for the retailers. I think we all know that. And if you don't have retailers on board or enthusiastic about an event, you know, you're out of business. Right. So I thought for the same reason, I wanted to make sure that the attendee in this case, the media is the attendee. They were excited, and I felt if I could just, again, communicate that to the brands that they're excited, uh, then the brands would, would come on board, and they did. Cool. And just real quick for our listeners that are not uh, in the cycling industry, Interbike is the largest North American cycling trade show, which originally was there for kind of retailers to see what was new, mm. but nowadays it's everybody knows what's new because they're reading sites like Bike Rumor and... <laughs> Uh, it's it's almost just sort of a chance to catch up with people and get more of a feel for the industry, I think. Absolutely. I mean, in 1998, when I took the helm of Interbike, it was a buying show. Uh, and retailers actually came to see new product and to put in their preseason orders. And uh, those preseason orders might be months away from actually arriving to retail. It was just a, a very kind of uh, natural progression of the way the business model was at that time. And in, back, in fact, uh, Tyler, in two, 1998, it was the largest trade show in the world. I mean, that's the dominance that Interbike had. Uh, over time, Eurobike became, you know, as, as the world got smaller and we became more global, Eurobike became a huge, uh, I, w I won't say competitor, but certainly another viable option for, for manufacturers to participate in. And you're right. I mean, as we've gone through technology changes and the landscape changes of the cycling industry, uh, it's been really easy for manufacturers to go and meet with journalists and uh, put their products in front of them and, and do things on their own. And that's really taken away from the significance of the trade show as we used to know it. All right. The, it seems like the, the idea for Press Camp then was initially, uh, like the, uh, the method of starting up was fairly low risk. You're calling people, you're getting them to commit, and until you actually have to write a check or put a deposit down, it's... You create a go, no good date. Uh, which is pretty logical, nothing too scientific about that. Um, you may have some small deposits that you're making with your venue and, and some of the you know, services that you plan to provide. You work your tail off to make sure that once you get to the go, no-go date, you have an event to, to go forward with. And then, of course, there are some, some monies to, to put down and, and, and to carry to the event, but uh, it is pretty low risk if you if you do it and you operate under that premise that you know you have a, you have a deadline and you have to get to a certain level and you have to determine that in your business plan. You know what do you need to turn the lights on and turn the lights off and make this into an event. And once you've had that, you know that calculation and that time period set, uh, then you just follow the script and work your tail off.
Right. What was your startup team like? I know you've had Chad with you for a while, and I think Billy as well. Well, the, the original team uh, back in 2009 was just Chad and I. Uh, we did have a gal now named Avery Stonich, who used to be with People for Bikes. Uh, and she was their marketer, and she was uh, freelancing. And I needed somebody to help communicate our message uh, that really could do a better job than Chad and I. So she was on with us part-time. And we actually were working with Chris Zygmunt at the time. Uh, he was, because he was the guy that actually fed me the idea way back from the beginning of my story with the Pedro's Fest, he's the one that called me and said, let's put something together. Uh, I called him back, and he's a friend, obviously, but I called him back immediately and said, hey, I'm taking this thing for real. We're going to do it. So he, he acted as a consultant pro bono work and helped us out. So I always want to give credit to Chris Zygmunt because he was a big part of that first show. Uh, do you guys rely on volunteer labor once you're here, or is it still just kind of the two or three of you? It depends on the venue. Um, the venues that we've selected, we've been very blessed with getting a lot of uh, support from the actual staff. And as you know, you've been to Park City, and the Park City staff that we work with, for example, they, they really kind of roll out the carpet and really help us get those events over the hump. I do have a Rolodex of people that we call in every year that uh, will bend over backwards and jump over fences and, and do whatever it takes to get us uh, over, the, over the events. You've met some of the staff I'm referring to. Uh, so they're not volunteers. I mean, we always try to take care of them uh, financially, but they're, but they're just guys that make themselves available for the event. Right. They have real jobs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you answered the question, how you attracted the brands for the first press camp and and calling the media. So I don't know if you remember, but I found out about the first press camp, like maybe not even a month before it was happening and tried petitioning you. I had a couple of brands call you and say, Hey, you should invite Tyler. And it was pretty early. Bike rumor. Yeah, it was early in the, in the game. I remember um, that. But I, we were also a very new site. We just launched bike rumor in 2008. Um, and I think we've been, so for year two, we've been in every year since. Right. But like when you looked at the first group of media that you wanted to invite, how did you select them? What was the criteria you were looking at? That's a good question. So, Fortunately for myself, working with Interbike for 10 years, I, I developed a media center there. That was kind of my concept. And I was really trying to, well, let me go back one step. I can say without hesitation that back in the latter part of my tenure there, I saw the show was losing its value proposition for retailers. But the show was going to go on. So I thought, we got to add more value to this event. And we did a lot of things to add value, but the biggest thing I thought was, if you're gonna have 22,000 people there and the media are there in big numbers, let's corral the media and give them a place to work, uh, a place to showcase, a place to do interviews, a place to conduct videos. And we created this media center. So I got so involved in the media center, my relationships with the media grew from that. So I had a pretty good Rolodex of the, of the guys and gals that I knew were you know, really kind of a staple media titles that you'd want to have at a press camp, at, at, particularly an inaugural press camp. So I reached out to them first and foremost, and when they all said yes, that was kind of my first stab at getting to know the media for press camp. But the point you're making is a valid one, where I then immediately counted much more on the brands that we were attracting to press camp to tell us, you know, who are we missing you know, from that list, or, or who's on that list that shouldn't be on that list, and do we need more international? Do we need less international? Do we need more active lifestyle, non-endemic? And what do we need? I mean, do you want to have Red Book or would you rather have, you know, outside? When you get into the, the non-vertical titles, there's a, there's a great difference of opinion sometimes on what that next title should be. So year after year, and you know, we're pretty religious about this. We do pretty extensive survey where we get feedback from the brands on 
you know, the quality of the media that we bring. And we even go as far as to ask, how is the quality of the journalists representing that title? Because that's important as well. And we've compiled that list year after year uh, and study it and look at it and say, where do we want to go for the, for the coming year? And, and we continue to get feedback on which direction to go. It's really not that easy because we've had some brands say, we don't want to see any international journalists. We have people in Europe to take care of that, or we have people there somewhere else. And then we've had the complete opposite. So we've had to balance that feedback and try to, what, try to do what we think is best for the brands that are coming in. And sometimes, um, not to get too into the, the woods, we'll book 70% of our journalists knowing that we need to look at the landscape of brands we have to determine the, the next 30%. Because if we see a, a trend, you know, we have five tri-brands, well, we better go get tri-titles. Or we have no tri-brands, let's get rid of the tri-titles and go get whatever it is that's pressing at the camp. So there's always that adjustment thing we do towards the end to make sure that we're bringing the best match to the camp. But the brands uh, and companies that we work with really have, for the most part, dictated you know, who we invite and make sure we have the best ones. You kind of you almost anticipated my next questions was how is, how has <laughs> the media selection changed over the years? So I know even just since we started Bike Rumor in '08 to to now 2017, yeah. it's the landscape has changed so much. Um, and, you know, it's, most of the same titles are still there, but the shift to importance on online is just well. There's no doubt. I mean, so I was just going to say the online media has been probably the biggest difference we've seen since we started back in 2009. I think in 2009. Don't hold me to the numbers, but virtually everything that was there was pretty much a print pub with maybe some online presence. But there was no specific blogger or no specific online title that I can remember in 2009. And now that ratio has changed pretty dramatically. I mean, most of our titles that are there are only online, either a blog capacity or a product review capacity. Um, you know, the model you have, Tyler, is one that I think has really shown us that that's the dy dynamic that has changed the most. They're doing what you do, covering a variety of products online, very, very quick pace, getting the best stories as quick as you get them. Um, it's the reason why you've been, you know, high on the list to come back every year, and that's what the feedback has told us from our brands. Oh, well, thank you. And that's all true, <laughs> no doubt. So from a brand perspective, mm. the press camps are not a cheap event to attend. This is... Um, this is what I've heard from other brands, sure. you know, and, and they love it, obviously, because you have brands coming back year after year after year. I think some have been every year. That's true. But how do you, what do you do specifically to create the value so that they can justify this expense to the bean counters at the home sure. office? Well, I mean, there's a couple of things. I mean, if you just look at what we offer in the package, I mean, we try to make the event turnkey. The idea is, unlike a trade show where you arrive at your, your venue you still have a hell of a lot of stuff to do and a lot of expense in front of you. We try to remove that entirely. We try to basically say to the brand, once you arrive and you check into your, your million-dollar two-bedroom condo, <laughs> you're done. Uh, we take care of all, everything else, every meal, uh, all the drinks, all the activities. We create the schedule. We bring in the journalists. We bring in some of the best editors in the world. Uh, you're there to focus solely on building relationships with the media, launching your products, getting some time in the saddle, and again with Park City and even here in Westlake Village on some of the best roads around. Um, that's the value proposition. But I think the bigger part of it is when they do have to go back to their CFO and get a check is they have to present the case that in order to get that quality of media attention, uh, 
15 to 25 of the best journalists uh, that are doing it for the industry. What is that? What kind of cost does that come? come at? I mean, can you if you just send products out in the mail or out UPS, crossing your fingers that a journalist is going to receive it, open the box, take it out and use it? That's that's foolish dollars spent. I think. I mean, that, that's very very risky proposition. If you get in your your sprinter and drive to meet with 25 journalists, um, that that goes without saying. That's a very expensive proposition. If you go to a trade event, you may see 30, 40 journalists. But how much time, how much quality time do you really have with them? So it's really up to the the brand manager and the PR agencies they may be working with to to really fully get their head around the value proposition that's on the table. Um, I know one of the brands that we've had, you, you mentioned we've had brands come back every single year, and I think Ridley is one of those. And Ridley does a very, very careful cost analysis on what they spent with PressCamp. And they they very uh, closely monitor the coverage they've gotten from PressCamp, they identify it, and they divide those numbers of stories, and, these, and they look at the, uh, the reach that the, that the titles are providing, and they put up a mathematical formula and say, that was far cheaper than anything we could have possibly done on our own. Further, I got a chance to ride with the editor. Further, I got a chance to network with them and break bread and have a glass of wine or a beer. These are, are kind of the, the ancillary or the peripheral advantages of press camp, never mind the, the actual stories that may come out of it. So I, we try to create a, great, a, a really strong value proposition, but really what's more important is measuring the success of the camp against the alternative, which is to either do your own thing, which is impossible for smaller brands, or cross your fingers and throw things into the wind, which some people do, sadly. Right. Well, I know from us and from a media side, it's incredibly valuable, too, because it's rare to get that one-on-one -on -one time with the people behind the brand where you can really talk deep in the products. Because like you said, at the trade shows, you get 10, 20 minutes, maybe. Maybe. You know, 20 minutes is if you're lucky and you're not just getting distracted constantly. So Somebody's it's, tugging on the guy's shoulder. Can I have a sticker? You know, it's just yeah. it. <laughs> so the value goes both ways. We're just fortunate on the media side that we don't have to pay to attend. It's, well, that's it. I mean, and, and I, I, we're talking about the brands and the manufacturers now, but right. the same goes with, with the editors. We try to make sure that their value proposition is very strong, too. We make it as, as convenient as possible. Um, give them the accommodations that make them comfortable and do their best work. And, and you know, Tyler, what's been really rewarding for me is I've had brands say post-event, you know, I got to, uh, I've already seen, you know, 12 stories break. And that already paid for the camp. But that means nothing to me or means little to me compared to the relationships I've developed. When we set out with the concept, that, it, that really wasn't in my mind. Like there would be these really long-lasting relationships built as a byproduct of press camp. And to hear that repeatedly year after year, I got to know Tyler, I got to know this guy, that guy, I never knew them before, I've, I've had five minutes at a trade show, or I've never been able to get them on the phone, whatever the story is, that part of press camp has been really, really rewarding to hear that, and I hear it a lot. All right, well, and it's <clears throat> not like, almost give you another plug, but like, again, from our standpoint, it's when you have these relationships that you've built, it's, easier for me to call like say Camelback if I need something for water bottles or packs or something Absolutely. than one of their competitors because I see those guys here every single year and then we've got to be friends so now sure. it's you know the brands where like we don't play favorites with our coverage we cover anybody and everybody but when we need a little bit deeper information we've got people cell phones that we can call as Absolutely. opposed to trying to call some random PR person that Absolutely. we don't know that's so. exactly the point yeah it's uh, yeah it's good it works um, both ways huh 
So one of the big changes I've noticed in the years we've been coming is the first most of the years that we were here, we would show up at dinner the first night. You guys would have some giant whiteboards, and then there'd be a mad <laughs> scramble to sign up and get the appointments you wanted and try and get the best brands first. And sure. I guess maybe it was last summer you started just assigning everybody's schedule? About two years now. We're on our second year, I think, yeah. And yeah. I'm kind of curious what your what the impetus was for that change. A couple things. Well, first off, um, we didn't really know how to do it at the first camp or the <laughs> second camp. And, you know, the, the, the funny story behind that is we created those whiteboards and we almost enjoyed the, whole, the kind of, you know, Le Mans start where everybody ran to the board and started putting their names up and we, we got some great photography of that. Uh, what you probably don't know was we took those three white boards back to our room and worked literally all night to convert those boards into schedules that we could give you for breakfast the next morning. Um, and, and we chose to allow, we thought the only logical way to make a schedule was to allow the journalists to, to pick the brands that they really needed to see and so on and so forth, to pick the time of day and that kind of thing. And we were, you know, keep in mind now, I, I knew the brands, I'm sorry, I knew the media titles well enough to make those phone calls to originally, but I really didn't know you guys as personally as, as I do now. So, I, Or who they'd sent, right? Like, right. You or might he, know the publication, but, but we didn't know which Charles was going to come. So we, because we didn't have a lot of confidence, I think maybe as a way of saying it, we were kind of green at this whole thing. We didn't want to try to create a schedule because we weren't sure exactly the dynamics of it and how it would work. Uh, as we began to work the process away from the whiteboards and then using some technology, which we really was a spreadsheet, and we were sending the spreadsheet out in advance and having that populated. Rather than a whiteboard, it was a spreadsheet that Chad would share with you and you'd pick some things. And then as that evolved, and Chad was doing that for probably three, four, five years, he was building the spreadsheet, getting everybody to sign up, and then making a final draft, and we handed it out. We began to see we kind of knew what Tyler wanted and we knew what Carlton wanted and we kind of knew intuitively the titles that needed to meet the brands and so on. We were getting good at it, I guess, is what I'm saying. And finally, Chad and I looked at each other and said, do you think we can make a stab at just doing it? And it really, I mean, it streamlines the process. And if, if we screw up and we say, oh, God, we put a, you know, a dirt magazine with a carbon road wheel manufacturer, you know, we'll lick our wounds and we'll fix it. Um, but... I'm pretty proud of the fact, and tell me if I'm wrong, because I'd like your feedback, but I feel like we've done a good job of doing the scheduling for the, for the different brands and different uh, media without too many um, you know, stupid pairings, if, if I can say it that way. And it really streamlines the process. And you walk in, you get your marching orders, and if we did a good job, then you're off and running, and, and there's not that whole process that really can be pretty tiring. Right. Well, we cover it all, so it's not like we're a well, road pub or a mountain bike pub. So and that's us, a great thing. As for long you. as we're seeing everybody, we're good. That's it. So, yeah. I mean, I mean, this camp's even a, even a great example, and we're you know the segment is road, with some gravel and, and cross and so forth. So everybody who's been invited needs to see everybody who's here. So that was a really easy schedule for us to do. But to your point, when you go to Park City, where we have a lot of multiple segment products, somebody like Bike Rumor is great because we know you want to see everybody. So we just plug in the, the boxes and we're done. It does get a little challenging when you bring in Lava and they're, they're a tripod and you look at a brand and you go, oh, first off, you don't even know if the brand may be switching gears. Sometimes you look at a brand and you go, well, they're all mountain, only to find out they're, they're diving into a new segment and you didn't even know it. And that could be a bad pairing or a missed pairing. Right. So we have to try to be on top of it, you know, but uh, you're right. I mean, it's easy to work with the brand, with the media that cover everybody.
When you go to somewhere like Park City or right now we're in Westlake Village, California, mm-hmm. this one it seems like it's a little more encapsulated, but like Park City, I know you've got a night out in the town, you've got some of the local restaurants bringing in food for the dinners, mm-hmm. and you get, it seems like more local uh, sponsors. What is the value for them? Because none of the journalists live there, and like I know we don't cover a whole lot of what goes on in the local scene. Mm-hmm. Um, like, how does Park City get value out of that? Well, uh, we've had Park City uh, Chamber of Commerce, for example, as a sponsor to press camp. I'm going to say every year we've been there, so however many that's been there, eight or nine times. The value proposition is they know that the quality of the of the journalists and media titles that we bring in. Um, particularly if they go global in some cases, uh, are writing about the destination. I mean, it's not, un- it's not uncommon to read coverage uh, of the products that were seen at a particular event that's preceded uh, with a paragraph about the beauty of Park City or the beautiful, beautiful trails that we've exposed to the journalists and so forth. That's of high value to Park City, obviously, and it's of high value to Deer Valley Resort, which is probably why we get so much great service out of that, out of that team. Um, you know, being there now as many years as we have, I think that's been toned down a little bit. I mean, I wouldn't blame a media title if they skipped the introduction to Park City, uh, if they've been doing it for a number of years. But, I, I mean, they do appreciate our presence there. And the bike industry has not just um, uh, observed Park City as a great place for, for a press camp, but as you may know, a lot of bike manufacturers and others come back and do dealer meetings there. They do uh, national sales meetings. So anytime... We bring in journalists, and they're writing something about Park City. It's a win-win for them. All right. Well, and you probably get a lot of the ancillary photos, too. You know, the action shots people are taking, they may not be called out, but I think a lot of regular readers probably know at this point where we are. Pretty much so, yeah. So for the restaurants at, that provide some of the dinners and food for Park City, do mm-hmm. you go and pitch those local places yourselves, or do you rely on the facilities and the like the local chamber of commerce or something? Uh, it's... It, you're almost spot on. I mean, the, the Park City Chamber of Commerce has their members that in particular have restaurants or things that they feature that we will get turned on to. But also we work with uh, a gal who does PR for the city of Park City who also is in our ear sometimes about this particular establishment or whatever that would like to get involved with our camp. So usually they're reaching out to us saying, we'd like to introduce you to so-and-so. And if it, if it works, it's... Not to get into the politics of it, it's a little bit fragile because Deer Valley Resort, who is also a member of the Chamber of Commerce, doesn't want to have too much of that outside stuff coming in. So it all has to kind of work out politically. But there's no shortage, I guess, of, of establishments that would like to get a part of Prescott. I'm not saying they're, they're, not, they're tearing down the doors, but I mean, there's, there's people that we can pursue that have shown interest to us anytime we want to go off campus and do something different. Right. So last year, I think it was, uh, Press Camp was purchased by ECRM, Correct. which is just a larger trade show type company, right? Yeah. There's a little story there that you might find interesting, so I'll just tell it to you as briefly as I can. First off, the CEO of uh, ECRM, so technically, technically my boss now, is a guy that uh, was the CEO of Nielsen Business Media that ran Interbike Outdoor Retailer and a bunch of other trade shows. So we had a relationship from years and years ago. When I left, right after I left, he left, the CEO of ECRM, and we reconnected on LinkedIn. And we reconnected on LinkedIn for one reason, was I heard through the grapevine that ECRM 
was this mid-sized company based in Ohio, outside of Cleveland. And their deal was they had 55 buying events that had a blueprint almost exactly like Prescott. And I found that to be really interesting. I'm like, well, what do they do? Well, they put brands in a room and retailers come in and they speed date for a little while and then they move to the next room. And I, that's in a way, that's Press Camp. The difference between really what they were doing and what Press Camp is, is Press Camp's got a huge experiential factor where theirs, did more, theirs was more like go in, write an order, go to the next room, write an order. They're not going out and demoing product. They are networking and stuff, but they're not doing some of the, the things that make Press Camp pretty charming, if you will. Long story short was um, I called Greg. I hadn't spoken to him in years, Greg Farrer, who's the CEO, and just started chatting. And he said, I heard what you're doing. It's, it's amazing how similar our events are. You're doing media. We do retailers. Have you anybody? I mean, the, the story is basically offer me a job. And he goes, would you like to come work with us? And I said, well, Greg, I can't. I have a company. <laughs> uh, but you know, after that conversation, uh, I sat with Chad, my partner, and I said, you know, Chad, Maybe there's something here because we were really struggling to take Press Camp to another level. We just didn't have the resources. We didn't have the time. And it was just, I mean, really what Press Camp was, was a company run by Chad and I from our homes uh, with limited resources and really wanting it to grow and wanting to have more Press Camps. And we really wanted to get into the outdoor industry. So I went back to Greg and said, I got a great idea. I said, I, I can't technically come work for you, but if you'd like to buy Press Camp, buy, buy the brand of Press Camp. Um, you know, what that will do for you is it will introduce uh, eCRM into active lifestyle where you're not. Because they're doing all kinds of more um, commodity business. You know, their shows are for health and beauty and shampoos and, you know, things that are, don't ever tell them this, but a bit of a, I hope he doesn't listen to this, a bit of a yawn compared to what we do. Our, you know, what we do, we're blessed to do something that's pretty, pretty exciting. Um, and he thought the idea was fantastic. He, he really, because of his experience working with Nielsen Business Media and being a part of Interbike and a part of outdoor retailer and action sports retailer, he always thought that was the coolest business in the world. So he thought I could bring in Press Camp as a way to get in ECRM into these active lifestyle industries. So that's been my, so basically what he did was he, he bought the brand, he hired me as uh, a senior vice president of a division we now call Active Lifestyle. And my marching orders are to bring more press camp style events to the portfolio. But at the same time, look at other opportunities to take the same blueprint and bring in retail. But we're watching those landscapes very closely. And they're, as you may know, they're, they're a bit rocky now. Date changes, location changes, people trying to determine whether they even want a big trade show anymore. Uh, I think we're in a great position because what we do is unique and I think it is more of the future to do smaller intimate events like we do with an experiential factor. So Greg is really excited that we are kind of watching the landscape, but we're still growing Press Camp. And it, it really enabled Chad and I to do all the things we wanted to do with Press Camp, but we just didn't have the resources for it. So, but nothing's changed. That's the beauty thing. Uh, we both still work from home. We're both, uh, we're gainfully employed. Uh, we can focus on events and I have to focus on spreadsheets and uh, how we're going to pay our mortgages and stuff. Right. <laughs> so. Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm glad you brought up retail because I had completely forgotten that you guys had a dealer camp, And we did have which dealer Which was camp. essentially yep. press camp, but with bringing in retailers instead of the Correct. press. And it, you guys ran it for two years? Three for, years. Three years, but yeah. it, was, it just couldn't Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be brutally like, honest with you. Our first event in 2010, dealer camp, as you described it, was much like press camp. It didn't have scheduled meetings, but it was 
an event that put a limited amount of manufacturers together with a limited amount of buyers that we flew in, top quality buyers to meet with those manufacturers. But it was set up a little bit more like a trade show where they would, could go from space to space and at their will and, and have uh, demo rides or you know, good quality meetings. There was, no, there was no time clock, but it was very successful. Our first event pitted 35 brands with 100 retailers that we brought in. Uh, it was you know, back in Park City. And in hindsight, it was perfect. The problem was, and this happens, you know, you're talking about you know, entrepreneurs and some of the, the pitfalls they can fall into. Our biggest pitfall was we were really intoxicated by the success of dealer camp the first time. And we thought, the landscape is changing, Interbike is stumbling, Eurobike is doing this, and we can do more. And we then got other partners involved in the business, which you might remember, Scott Montgomery was one of our partners. Chris stepped in, became a partner, a financial partner in the business. And we took the event from 2010 to 2011, and we grew it, I can't remember the figures, about five times. Five times in terms of revenue, five times in terms of the number of retailers, five times in the number of brands that were participating. Uh, it was a longer event. It was, you know, all those moving parts were magnified by five or ten times. And it was, it was a big event. We struggled to get through it because we, were, we weren't prepared for the growth in one year that was that big. And I think people came out of that event okay, but they weren't as ecstatic as they were in year one. And we realized in, in a way that we just kind of created another trade show with a lot of great features, much better features than I think we have in a traditional trade show. I mean, we were in the element, we were outdoors, there was no unions to pay, there was no forklifts and ancillary expenses that could kill you. And you could demo the bikes. And That's you could demo the bikes in some of the best places trails. in the world. So we did a lot of things right, but at the end of the day, it was still kind of a, a big outdoor event that lost its personality, if you will. It lost its intimacy, I think, to a certain extent. And some brands domineered other smaller brands, and we hated that. We didn't want to see big brands, you know, stepping on the toes of the little brands. And by the time we relaunched it again in 12, that stigma or some of those negative comments kind of came back to haunt us in 12. Well, we intentionally in 12 brought it back in. We reeled it back in to make it smaller so we can get back to where we started. But it was almost a little bit too late. And, I, and frankly, the whole concept was a little too early. I, I don't think the industry was ready to do, to support events in June. I mean, even though we were flying in retailers and giving them travel subsidies, the concept of them doing a public event or a non-private event, like we see Trek and Specialized do, was was kind of radical, frankly. Well, it's also key selling season for a lot of. And them. it's a key selling season. It's part of the struggle. I think even Interbike is going to go through looking at seventeen and eighteen, particularly eighteen. They're they're trying to get that show to move to June, and my understanding is from the survey results, the dealers are just not ready to be, or not going to support a June event. So they're kind of caught in the pickle, even though there are buying events going on privately with the big bike manufacturers. They're just not ready to attend a big public show like that. So. That is what we tried to do years ago, and, and the long and short of it was Chad and I looked at each other and said, what are we doing? I mean, we're killing, I mean, the, the amount of work to do that event versus press camp is, is tenfold. You know, registering all those retailers, and it, everything was magnified by, like I said, five or ten times. And we go, we got press camps to do. We got, we got the need and the desire for people, from people to do more press camps, do a winter camp, do an outdoor camp. And we knew from talking to manufacturers and different media that we had that opportunity. So we looked at each other and said, no more New York. We're just going to pull the plug. 
put it on a, on a, on a shelf. And that was the idea. But what, what happened was a, a, a young, I wouldn't say young, but an entrepreneur attorney who lives in Park City came along and said, I'm going to be uh, continuing to run. And he was running the uh, Park City uh, Consumer Festival that was going on for a couple of years there in July. I'd like to buy your event, put them together, and see if I can do something with it. And we thought, you know, that's, that's got legs. That could happen. So not to get too far into that story, but we ended up selling the brand and, the, and the, you know, the trademark to this attorney who I spent enormous amounts of time with uh, a woman that he named as his show director. I took her to Interbike, walked her down every aisle, introduced her to everyone, and they decided after that experience, for whatever reason, and to this day I have no idea why, to shelve it. So it, it went away, which was kind of sad, because we really wanted to see it live on, but we had other fish to fry, so we just decided to go back to press campus. All right. And so you mentioned growing the outdoor, or bringing in more outdoor lifestyle to the ECRM family, yep. and I know you guys last year introduced outdoor press camp, right. which was really cool. It was, yeah. Is it, uh, was that your idea, ECRM's idea? No, that was our idea. I mean, uh, Chad, again, when Chad and I were working with limited resources, we had a, a lot of different ideas. Uh, one was winter, and we really wanted to do a winter event, first and foremost, for bike. Uh, but the second thing on our whiteboard, if you will, was to, to launch this outdoor event because every time, well, let me go back just one step. Um, remembering that I worked for Nielsen Business Media running Interbike, right down the hall was where they ran Outdoor Retailer. So Outdoor Retailer was a sister show to me for 10 years that I attended every year, knew a lot of the manufacturers, knew a lot of the people there from attending, and just kept saying they're going through the same, in many ways, the same dynamics, the same struggles in some cases that bike is and vice versa. So why wouldn't we get into that landscape? So it was our idea for years to do that and we just didn't have the resources. The one thing we didn't have though, to be, to be honest with you was, even though I had some of those experiences, I didn't have a guy or a gal that would have a level of knowledge of that industry like Chad and I had. So in order to go forward with that, we had to get a consultant. And that's when we hired Kenji Haratunian, who coincidentally was the ex-show director for Outdoor Retailer. So uh, to have him on board then and then with ECRM's support and resources, we knew that we could make that event happen. And it did. And it's going to grow this year and it's going to be better and uh, we're real excited. Great. Yeah. I, saw, I, I know you got to run soon. I'll give you a quick question yeah. then. Like, sure. Just from the like a more logistical standpoint, somebody who's thinking, you know, this sounds like an interesting concept. I got an idea for this in XYZ industry. What are some of the like stepping stones you guys had to come up with? I mean, to me, because I've run events myself, it's sure. to me, it's a giant checklist. It it's is like if you put together a good checklist, there are very few surprises. But. Yeah, I think I mean, that's a great point. I think you have to come up with a really good checklist and a really good timeline. And the timeline and the checklist go hand in hand. And you got to be able to say, we need to accomplish this and get it off our list by a certain date, and just being really organized about the steps. The other thing that's unique about events, and you may know from doing your own events, it's a bit of a chicken and egg. You know, you got to get participation and support on this side, and you got to get participation and support from this side, and balance that as you go down your timeline. Because if you go too heavy on this side and you forget about this side, you got a problem, and vice versa. And there are timelines on when you need to have the support. In other words, in, in the case of press camp, if we just go all brand centric, we're going to keep talking to brands and not talk to the media. You find yourself playing catch up, and that can be really dangerous. And the same is true in the opposing view. If you look at media and just talk to them all day long, oh, we better go get some brands. Sorry, the budget's gone. 
So there's that timeline and that checklist, like you said, that you need to really focus on and be really organized. If you do that and you focus and you, and you just have that, that gut instinct of the way the, the landscape is, the, where the market's going and w what's happening, you can be successful in the event business. But it, it does have a gut intuition factor. That's pretty big. All right. Yeah. Great. Lance, thank you very much for your you time. You bet, right. It's good talking to you. You could hear Lance's cell phone buzzing toward the end of our interview, which he graciously did just a couple hours before the kickoff dinner to Winter Press Camp 2017. That he had time to sit down for an hour with me shows the power of his advice. Create a solid checklist, keep things moving on time, and you'll end up with a very smooth running event. There's always hiccups, of course. We had to pause the recording for a minute so they could sort out one exhibitor's room, but by and large, the four-day event went off without a hitch. In fact, next year they'll likely add another day because there's demand for more time and more brands. Which just goes to show, if you create something that provides value to your customers, not only will they keep coming back, but they'll usually bring their friends. For more thoughts on this episode, show notes, and links, head to the blog at thebuildcycle.com. Did you like this podcast? Know an interesting entrepreneur that I should interview? Send me a message through social media or in the blog's comments and I'll get to work. And stay tuned for the next episode featuring Shane Cooper, founder of Defeat Socks, and hear how he grew the company from a single machine to the dominant cycling sock brand. And he had to do that not once, but twice. That story next week. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes and Stitcher and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We're at The Build Cycle on all three. Thanks for listening.